Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we dive in, shout out to Alan, hopefully not the CEO of my company, or maybe it is, that's fine too, for joining our Patreon and supporting the show. No way to know that. (laughs) Only Alan, I know. (laughs) Well, now we know this one. Two Alans in my collection. So, to be like Alan, or any of our other wonderful patrons, um, you can join at any number of tiers, which gets you a monthly newsletter and various bonus content and that fast approaching 100 patrons celebration (laughs) gift. I know. You can do all that by heading over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. All of those subscriptions help us keep the show going and do the outreach and projects that are really important to us. So thank you all so much. And hey, if you just want to chill with us and listen, we love that too. Yeah. So this week, you're not just chilling and listening to us. You're also listening to another very special guest. So Kyle Jordan is a disabled postgraduate student at University College London, uh, currently studying the archaeology and heritage of Egypt and Western Asia. So his interests broadly encompass themes of religion, magic and identity in the Egyptian world, uh, with a very specific focus on the appearance and interpretation of disability in ancient Egypt and Egyptology as a discipline. That's right. We're talking about Egypt today. We're doing it again. And so Kyle posted a wonderful thread on Twitter after our episode with Andrew Gerza came out, unpacking the episode a bit and offering to join us as a guest to explore disability in archaeology and in the archaeological record a bit more. So we're so glad you reached out, Kyle, and so glad you could join us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. And already I can tell this is going to be one fun (laughs) podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let's keep those expectations low. (laughs) Well, there's no chance of that. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're going to have fun no matter what. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll get right into it with the question we always start with. How did you come to be an archaeologist and what has your trajectory looked like? Well, I started in archaeology because... I mean, let's go all the way back to little, little Kyle when he was six years old. Little Kyle, what a dude. He was six years (laughs) old and um, he was moving from Harrogate in North Yorkshire down to Cornwall in the southwest of England. And at the time he was moving, um, the school he was leaving had just started teaching Egyptology or Egypt, ancient Egypt as a subject. This is something they like to do with young kids around that age because it's something that obviously fascinates and grips them. Same with ancient Greece. I didn't get that. Oh, yeah, we were spoiled with that one. Um, but yeah, so as I was leaving, they were just starting in, in the school that I was leaving. And then when I arrived at my new school, they had just finished. So oh. little Kyle was no. devastated. He was like, oh, I have I have been robbed of this opportunity. So um, this is like your I, super villain 
um, like origin, origin story. story. <laughs> origin <laughs> story. Well, villains and Egyptology, that goes a long way. Um, anyway, uh, oh, um, yes. Um, so I was insistent. I had to know. I, I, I really had to know. Um, and so that, that just kind of kept my fascination going. And that kind of goes on to the second question. So I won't go too much into that. But basically that stayed with me. And then when fat, Fast forward years and years and years later, and now we get to smelly adolescent Kyle, um, and he's now having to choose his um, his university degree um, because in the UK you have to go through a system known as UCAS, and you have to decide you have to make applications to a number of universities. Um, and I was looking very intently for Egyptology programs. I really wanted to to kind of return to this thing that really started me on my love of history as a broader discipline. Um, and ancient history and Egyptology at University College London was the one that kind of topped my list uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, just the idea that, that it was a it was a dual honours degree. So ancient history was done with the history department at UCL, and the Egyptology was done with the Institute of Archaeology. And the other one of the other key reasons that I chose UCL, not only because it was in London, and London is quite an accessible city comparatively to the rest of the UK. Uh, but also because it's literally a walk, like two, three minute walk away from or wheel, I guess, in my case, uh, away from the uh, British Museum. And that's a place that I've wanted to, to direct since I was 10 years old. So this uh, this kind of trajectory is how how I fell into the discipline. And since I kind of arrived, I will admit uh, when I first started getting to grips with archaeology um, wasn't easy at first. Um, not so much that I couldn't understand the subject and uh, didn't enjoy the content. It was more coming to terms of seeing myself in the subject. I always thought I would stay as more of a historian because this was still at a time when I thought the two were in any way distinct in, in the way that the academy likes to put them when in reality, I don't really think they are. But anyway, <laughs> I struggled to kind of see myself as an archaeologist in the physical presence of the sense. Um, but really, as I continued my degree and as I continued to do more and more subjects, I found myself doing more and more archaeology courses. I was just um, finding myself fascinated with the kind of not just the material substance of things, but our relation with the material substance of things. Mm -hmm. And and. Therefore, um, I just became fascinated with with that and the theory around it. Oh, the archaeological theory that everyone loves to bemoan, but in reality is fundamental to everything we do. This is a uh, pro theory so, podcast. This Don't is a pro theory podcast. Yes, yes it is. Um, it is. <laughs> so, Despite my grumbling. <laughs> so, yeah, the, I, I just ended up feeling more attuned to archaeology by the end of my undergraduate. So as I continued into postgraduate study, uh, sticking with the Institute of Archaeology was what felt right. And so that's where I've remained since. And I, as I was saying about theory, that's something that I kind of really uh, like to chew on, uh, if you will. Like it's something that I really uh, like to sink, sink, sink my teeth into and really, really kind of puzzle out. Um, yeah. So that's where I currently am doing all this uh, big thinking uh, <laughs> with, with archaeological theory. You've you've come a long way from just wanting to know what they were keeping from you. Yeah, small child. What secrets do you hide? <laughs> what secrets? I must know uh -huh. all secrets. And what and frameworks just, can I use to understand them? <laughs> that's, that's what, at eight years old, you were like, yep, yeah. my ontology. <laughs> um, so just so I understand, um, mm -hmm. sort of coming from 
like the U.S. school ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, when you applied to university, did you do you apply to just the university or do you apply to the actual program? Like, do you choose mm. like do you choose what like what we would call your major, like, your, like what your yeah, degree your, would mm, be your path. Like you yep. Use that when you apply, like when you are, you know, 16 years old mm-hmm. or, or are you, <laughs> do saying, you have to like, be locked in then or, uh-huh. yeah, like, or do you just say like, I want to go to this school and mm-hmm. I'm going to explore topics in sort of this arena mm-hmm. or if, even if that, cause it's just like thinking about when I was mm-hmm. 16. So yeah, no, um, it is, it is when you think about it in hindsight, it's a bit of a, of a ridiculous system, but anyway, uh, so the way it works is that you do apply for the program. So that's okay. where you, that's where you start with. So you basically, I, I don't know if it's changed since it more than likely has the UK has this tendency to change things every five or even less years, because for some reason that solves any underlying problems. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, they, the, so the way it works is, or the way it worked for me is that there was like a central database essentially where you would fill in an application, you would make a personal statement about why you would make a good university student. And generally in that personal statement, what you would do is you would speak more broadly about your interest and, and interest in a particular subject or field. So you would mention, so for me, it was mentioning history, archaeology, um, anthropology, things like that. Um, but then those applications get sent off to programs that you specifically choose. And sometimes Sometimes those programs have additional requirements. Um, Oxford and Cambridge, for example, they expect you to apply earlier and you have to write a kind of actual essay to um, kind of apply. I think there might have been one for UCL as well, but I can't remember. It's seven years ago now, so forgive me. But essentially... um, you apply for the programs first and foremost. If you don't get accepted for those programs... um, Often what might be the case is they might be like, hey, do you want to do this program instead? Or they, you go into what's called clearing, which is basically um, a bunch of wider universities will still have re- remaining spots open that then you can take instead, or you can just hold off and apply the next year. So I applied for uh, UCL, uh, then I applied for Exeter, York, uh, Reading, and I want to say Cardiff. And those were my five choices. And you have to you have to list them in preference. And then your top two are the only ones that you can are, are kind of locked in. And it's the, between those two that you have to pick. So my top okay. two were were UCL first and then Reading second. Um, and then I got offers from both. So I decided to go with UCL in the end. Fortunately, I was very lucky to get my first choice. So if you so had you been accepted to UCL and then mm. Exeter, you couldn't say actually I think I want to go to Exeter because it was no. a lower yeah. lower ranking. Yeah, no, you it's, could only pick between your top two. I'm learning so it's, much, and we haven't even gotten to the Egyptology of it. <laughs> um, no, this is what this, a good segue. <laughs> this is like thank you for for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. It's very different from our experience. It's it's Mm. very different from the undergraduate experience in the U.S. Mm. um, and perhaps other places. Um, But it sounds more similar to in in ways it's shades of the graduate application experience Mm. because Mm -hmm. in with with graduate like working towards your master's or a PhD you're applying to a very specific Mm. program and so you're admitted you're admitted first to the program and then sort Mm. of a like cursory uh, admission to the graduate school. But yeah, with undergraduate, you just sort of, you, you just, some people just go it's to college the school and first, yeah. figure it out, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which I, did. Um, I think also speaks, speaks to some like 
structural issues <laughs> in the education system. <laughs> what do you yeah, mean? It's perfect. <laughs> um, perfect. No flaws yeah. whatsoever. Nope. No notes. But that is um, all the more impressive that mm. anyone <laughs> gets a degree of just sort of like figuring out. Locking like, yourself mm. in at age like, 16. Yeah, yeah this is it. Because I'm sure that there are many people Mm. Uh, perhaps the majority of people like don't have that sort of moment mm. in their youth where they're like, mm. I want to do this. If you would ask me at 16, I thought I mm. wanted to be an English major. Yeah. Far too often it's it's education by rote. You will get this target. Mm. You will achieve these grades. And that is it. If you are below target, we will remind you ceaselessly until you are either. But <laughs> the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> sort of like sort of level of, of kind yeah. of like kind of process and don't get me wrong I had some wonderful teachers and it's thanks to them that I was in part able to get so far but um, fundamentally the school system assuming that uh, like you said someone at 16 or 17 has to know what they're going to go on to do and that is their lot in life like that is what you are aiming towards and that is that is just a very outdated way of of which education works it's still based on a very 18th 19th century model of factory work basically and that's just not how people should or 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 can effectively learn well okay well we could have I'll start another show. That, about, yeah, that's like, another education to do this. <laughs> oh yes, that, that's we'll a whole another can of worms. So, apart from just secrets. the secrets of secrets. what you missed, of what the conspiracy of of mm. uh, elementary educators, <laughs> mm. what Egyptologists don't you. want you to know, um, what first got you hooked? on ancient Egypt like what like you you know you could have just like read a, a book and been like mm. oh, okay and then like you know gone back mm. moved on with your life yeah and um but but what was it what got you like I said little Kyle was adamant to know um more and so on his um kind of continual uh um admonitions um his uh, uncle uh, Peter eventually bought him the book Egyptology by Emily Sands, and it is a large uh, kind of picture book, uh, picture book with pullouts and kind of interactables uh, for young people. Um, and he just fell in what love with it. What a great last and, name for a book about Egypt. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, little little Kyle, little little <laughs> Kyle was um, was convinced that that was deliberate. But anyway, <laughs> um, might be. Yeah. Um, Big uh, Amber is too. <laughs> yeah, yes. yes. Um, so yeah, it was reading this book and that was just what got me hooked on like the, I guess you could say just the sensationalness of, of ancient Egypt, just the, the wonder and the, and the magic and the, and the majesty is as, as it is in the popular conception and the popular mind. So that was what got me in as it does most six, seven, eight year olds at that time. But what made me stick with it and what kept that hook kind of very firmly in for me, um, beyond just watching the mummy when he really shouldn't have when he was far too young, uh, but uh, in Imhotep, Imhotep, take that beverage scholars. Um, there was, in all seriousness, I kept reading. Reading was one of my big pastimes when I was younger. Um, living in Cornwall when we moved there, Cornwall is a beautiful place, but it is not a very accessible place. And so um, young Kyle going into his adolescent years, um, I couldn't um, really go out and do 
what young kids would usually do. Um, I mean, I did get opportunities to do that when I was a bit older, but therefore for most of my childhood, I spent my time indoors reading um, books, uh, reading things online, very early Wikipedia sort of thing. Um, And I just became fascinated with Egyptian kind of society and people and getting to fathom with the with the idea that 5000 years ago these people were leading their lives kind of in this different time in this different space but uh, they were still obviously fundamentally human and i was just enthralled by it i just i just i wanted to keep learning more and more and more and i was just fascinated by um mythology i was fascinated by the entire construct of religion i just found the whole sort of thing it really it really um sparked my imagination i actually um to my father's um uh kind of um humor i i would um so occasionally in our little village you would occasionally get the uh the the jehovah's witnesses who would come around and they'd knock on the door and obviously everyone else would shut slam the door in their face but i would be the one who would end up having this was me at like maybe 14 15 16 um i would be the one who would start having a a debate with them um very friendly one and and i think they at first were having a conversation with me because they were like oh he's the he's the disabled guy we can we can we, we can win him over but very quickly they learned that they could not but that i would be polite to them because i didn't see any reason to be mean so yeah we ended up just having these conversations and so relating that to to kind of ancient experiences of religion was just something that I found really fascinating. And it helped as well in in learning modern history, like, because modern history, the way it was taught is that you would always read, like, you know, first-hand sources. You would read these letters or newspaper clippings or what have you, and you would look at images and stuff. But I, I found it useful to kind of contrast that with how you work with ancient sources and kind of looking kind of beyond just what you see, excuse me, right in front of you. Um, and so that kind of always stuck with me and I always had it in the back of my mind, especially as I got a bit older and I did start to get my first understandings of, uh, the intricate kind of relationship between Egyptology, imperialism, race, all these things. And you were learning about like in, in schools in the UK, one very common topic that comes up during uh, what we call a levels. So these are the two years before university. These are the grades that you need to get to get into university. Um, one of the very common topics is the civil rights movement in the uh, United States. So, um, so yeah, like learning about um, African-American identity and, and history of, of African-American identities and then looking at the longer history of, of kind of African history in, as in terms of the entire continent and then relating that back to how we think about Egypt and its relationship with the West as, as we construct it, which are obviously questions that I look at today as something that just that just had me hooked from the beginning uh, when when I when I first started to come around to those things and see the connections and and yeah, it just it just it never left. And there is something, and I don't know if this is because of you know Hollywood portrayals or something that just sort of comes along with mm. how Egyptology was first viewed by by Europeans in sort of the 18-1900s but there is sort of a a sense of of magic and and sort mm. of um mystery and so to what extent in in sort of the real lives of ancient Egyptians to what extent did religion and magic play a part mm. 
in in identity of the average person and and do we do we know how regular people lived and and sort of went about their spiritual lives because i know we know details of 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 basic everyday mm-hmm. life like the foods that people ate and the work that they did but but what mm-hmm. about sort of the the less tangible i think to start with that question because that is i think one of the million dollar questions of egyptology like hey, trying hey. to get into the actual kind of lived experiences uh, and sensations of an ancient Egyptian's life and times. Um, I think you first, for any, for, to, to step into that world, you need to take kind of a step back from how we look at the environment today and try and as best you can inhabit the environment as it would have been for them. Uh, like if you go to ancient, if you go to Egypt today, um, there are many things that because of man-made sort of decisions like the the NASA dam for instance for instance now that there are no kind of seasonal floods anymore at least not to the to the to the kind of destructive degree that they were um all the way back in in ancient times their sensations of their environment not just in terms of the the flooding and the seasons which were dictated by that by that uh, changing kind of landscape but also uh, if you think about the the kind of the the natural world that that lived alongside them, and then you think of the harshness of of the landscape that they are living in. If you think about how the vast majority of Egypt is desert, and it is just the Nile River and the Delta that really provides any sort of abundant sort of safe living space. And I say safe in the in the in the kind of broadest sense that this this was a place where, of course, because humans gather there, so too do animals, and quite a few of those animals are quite <laughs> territorial and predatory. So even even the Delta itself or the Nile River itself was not necessarily free of danger. There was quite a lot of danger. Um, yeah, hippos, no thank you. Oh yes, hippos, no thank you. Uh, dangerous, dangerous water horses. There's a lot of sensation that's going around. And I think for ancient Egyptians, uh, what you can see in front of you and what you can reason with what's in front of you is really, really important. In fact, um, on a slight divergent, but it will kind of link back in, um, one of the foundational creation myths of uh, the Egyptians was the idea of um, the eternal waters of none, and that is where all life begins and is created from. And there are slight variations on them on these myths, so this isn't the sole creation myth, but one in particular is the idea that Amun birthed himself into consciousness within the waters and he forced his way out, and as he forced his way out, the land of Benben, this mound of earth which... Um, is, is supposedly replicated in the kind of the shapes of pyramids and the and the, the peaks of obelisks and if you if you in when when the Nile used to flood and contract islands would appear all the time that's believed where mm-hmm. Thebes uh, the where Karnak where it stands to where it stands today that would have been an island that appeared um when the Nile receded at one point and they decided that as a as a place for that because of that phenomenon. Um, but anyway, yeah, so he forces his way out of the water. And in that moment, he he breathes his first breath like like a baby does from bursting from the womb. Um, and in that moment, he gives creation to three uh, key concepts, uh, seer, which is divine perception. So for, for him, that means he is able to see kind of forward, backwards in time and space and all these other things. Um, there's a uh, which is authoritative utterance. So it's the ability to speak and to command words. And we'll get back to that 
And finally, Heka, which is magic itself, or at least gets translated as magic. Um, when we say magic, it's it's more useful to imagine it as like power in its rawest form. So the power that gave birth to these things, that gave birth to creation, that um, that really constitutes the space in which we live. Everything is imbued with this Heka. So going back to what that means for the kind of lived experience and relationship of ancient Egyptians with religion and magic, everything in their world to a greater or lesser extent was imbued with these same forces. Like, like I was just saying, Egyptians would always comprehend the things that they saw in very kind of literal terms. So again, the flooding and receding of the Nile and the changing of the landscape, those were seen as, as phenomena. Um, same with um, the natural world and the chaos of the natural world. That's a very consistent theme in mm. Egyptian uh, iconography, the contrast between the ordered human society and the, and the natural chaotic society, uh, society, if you will, of animals, which to bear in mind, to contrast the two is not necessarily to say that one is better than the other. Both are necessary to the fundamental building blocks of, 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 the, of that lived world. Natural chaos is necessary for human order to sustain itself. So when you see scenes of hunts and, and things, it's necessary for that, for that natural chaos is necessary to facilitate that hunt so that humans can, can live. Uh, the only things that, that the only chaos that was seen as unorderly and a threat to the order of things was the unnatural chaos. So these were demons um, and and spirits and malign spirits that obviously would affect the human world in in ways that couldn't be comprehended, and that was the real threat. Firstly, uh, like magic is magic sort of a uh, sort of like the an existential force, like sort of like. The, like life the, force mm. no 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 no. like like the existence okay. of other things like the like what brings things into existence like like mm. witnessing is is it is it sort of is that more like what magic is it's not like it's not you know it's not the sort of thing that you know mm. we're calling upon um some mm. source of strength to sort of like use us as like a, a vessel to bring Conduit, something yeah. about or bring about mm. some sort of desired change it's it's sort of it it Everything it just exists. So, like, is, is magic like something that propels magic. things through? <laughs> like, I, yeah, I'm just trying to. Mm. Yeah, no, no. not not so much like like life force or sort of like the soul or anything mm. like that, but just sort of like what what makes things exist. Like, just sort mm. of like what brings these yeah. phenomena into existence and persistence. Mm. Is that? Yeah, in in the in 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 the broadest possible terms, uh, Heka is the the foundational blocks of of everything. It is it is what is what is harnessed. Uh, so so to go back to the creation myth, after these three core concepts, Sia, Hu, and Heka, um, the next thing that Amun does is create Ta. Ta, the creator god. And Ta is the creative mind. He is the one who harnesses these things in order to create okay. uh, the world as it is. So, so the, everything... they're the raw materials yes. that, are, that are used by mm. a creator mm -hmm. to create the created. Okay. Yes, uh, it, is the, it, is the raw, okay. it is the raw potency of the world, if, if you want to think of it in that way, the magical okay. world. Uh, from a human perspective, uh, this is again to relate to how Egyptians kind of relate with religion and magic. Think of the, think of the script, think of hieroglyphs. That's not just a sim uh, symbolic language, but it is a, it is a living language. 
the 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 kind of the idea that it speaks to the gods the actual living creatures in the text dictate how you speak it because you are either speaking you 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 read it either left to right or right to left depending on how the living creatures in the text are facing mm-hmm. uh, so you're all you're always okay. speaking into them and if you look at how art is placed alongside hieroglyphic text usually um the art is part of the text you don't read it but it kind of reads along with it and sometimes yeah. especially in the context of tombs it is to be read as if the person represented is either the one speaking it directly or or maybe less indirectly so they're narrating if if you will mm-hmm. um and it's it's narrating to the gods it's 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 to kind of show reverence i guess but also to to communicate some sort of key facts so like a lot of a lot of tombs would would say things like i have been a good husband i have been faithful to my wife i have been a loyal overseer of the granaries or or what have you um and 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 these things and and of course our record is 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 skewed in favor of these things these these monuments of stone are always going to last longer than than material things but even in the loose bits of ostraca that we find that have hieratic text which is the cursive form of hieroglyphs which was the kind of much more common sort of script that was used in day-to-day life you mm-hmm. find a lot of these kind of admonitions of of just daily life that the egyptians went through and it's always important to bear in mind that even if they were highly religious people that doesn't necessarily make this sort of technocratic boundary between the two of the between us in the present and them in the past in the sense of that they it didn't make them less appreciative of their own kind of agency in the world that they were living Mm -hmm. in they it was just more of a thing of like they would witness these phenomena happening around them all the time and to comprehend them and make sense of them they came up with these very complex mythologies and these rituals that kind of guided their not just their kind of sensations of life but their 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 actual kind of kind of management of life in 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 the sense of like the the seasonal calendar is very much a calendar of festivals it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturomedia.com then please do culturo is spelled k-u-l-t-u-r-o and it's where we promote all of our live events We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Like, who is this for? Like, what we read mm. in in hieroglyphics, what we see in the um, the the more like religious or monumental art, mm. it's often very high. It's it, mm. it's 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 my understanding is that it's sometimes been interpreted that sometimes you are like it's for the gods to read, not for mm. a person to read. And I pushed on this this question of like, if I were an average Egyptian, 
Mm-hmm. And I had no, I, I had no sort of cultic role. I had mm-hmm. no, um, n- nothing like that. No sort of royal anything, like mm-hmm. nothing administrative. Joe Egyptian. Yeah. Joe's if, Egyptian. So yeah. So if I were just like the average working, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, working class every Egyptian. person, mm-hmm. um, would I care about any of this? Would any of this matter to me? Could I read it? Mm-hmm. And so it's not, and you know, your, your, your point about um, the hieratic script on Ostraka, mm-hmm. which the uh, pottery shirts that have been written upon, mm-hmm. is yeah. that okay mm-hmm. for, for the, the uninitiated? Um, so there, you know, literacy was, was a thing people, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that this is something that it wasn't necessarily universal, you know, mm-hmm. like, but, but it were an option. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just want, I just want to talk to somebody more sympathetic to Marxist ideas than uh, like my, my professor hit a point where he was like, I never cared for Marxists like during this conversation. And I was to you specifically to me specifically. And I was like, okay, cool. Okay. (laughs) Good. Just thinking about like, and when you say you were talking about in tombs and like having sort of Mm. the person, like sort of the subject as, as Mm. as speaking, um, well, like you would, would this ever be something that someone would read? Like what I, like, what was he speaking directly to, the like various entities of the afterlife or the gods mm. was he speaking to visitors so if you're your average joser uh, <laughs> you know you know in ancient egypt i think one thing that's important to bear in mind is that another part of the sensational kind of experience of your life as i was talking uh, about earlier is also in the built environment in egypt not just the temples that would dominate the landscape and obviously the other monuments like the pyramid which would have dominated the Giza Plateau and would have been seen from miles around. But also think about how the West Bank of the Nile uh, becomes very much a a sacred landscape in itself because it becomes a very popular place for where tombs are built because it follows the Western uh, setting of the sun, the dying Mm. sun. Uh, And so the the land of the West was seen as the land of the dead. So most tombs, not all, but the vast majority of tombs in ancient Egypt are placed on the West Bank of the Nile. So this would have affected how ancient Egyptians from all kind of stratas of society would have envisioned their, their landscape. Now, to go to the question of how maybe an average Egyptian would have conceptualized these bigger monuments that they would have been living around day to day. So temples, for instance, there's a number of very tricky questions because on the one hand, how are we measuring literacy? Um, and wh- how, at what point is a person considered literate or not? Like it's entirely possible that maybe a, a person had some sense of some hieroglyphic signs, but not all of them. There's a there's a sense that um, you know maybe they they knew more because they were related to a priest perhaps and and they just learned it through there because it's worth bearing in mind that the priesthood when we are writing about these things we are obviously coming at it from an experience of Abrahamic tradition where there are clergies and there are cloisters and and things are very kind of organized in in a kind of dogmatic sense but there is there is no kind of organization of that kind in ancient Egypt or a lot of ancient kind of societies. Um, There is a lot more fluidity to a degree, I should stress, as to um, who is part of these kind of priestly roles. Quite a few members 
of the, of, a, of a local community would actively take part in in what we consider priestly roles, like um, the kind of maintenance of the statue and of the sanctuary and of kind of performing in those festivals that I talked about, the the kind of carrying out of the statue and the kind of the singing and the dancing and the kind of the jubilation of it. Um, and, you know, this also, our knowledge of this is affected by our understanding of the lived environment as well. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, while our knowledge of cities in and lived spaces in ancient Egypt is certainly uh, grown more and more over the years. We are still kind of nowhere close to understanding the full mechanics of city life and even rural life in ancient Egypt, because quite frankly, a lot of the spaces that were occupied by ancient Egyptians are still occupied by modern Egyptians today. Because again, Egypt, one thing that hasn't changed, still mostly desert. So 99% of the population still living in the exact same place they did 5,000 years ago. Um, so obviously that makes archaeology um, very, very difficult. And as a, as a kind of aside, as one should always remember the ancient past is not so separated from the modern present as we like to think. And that is especially true when we think about um, kind of these contexts and thinking about relationships between ancient and modern um, peoples, in this case, Egyptians, you know, they still live in these same environments. So it's, it's always worth bearing in mind. So that, anyway, that was an aside. Um, point is, um, as to what average Joza would have thought, even if he or she couldn't really understand exactly what the hieroglyphs were saying, if we take that position, if we assume that they just had no literacy at all, and they were just looking at the symbols and the signs, they would have been able to still recognize some of the key kind of symbols, because again, they are a very kind of perceptive sort of people. So they, they recognize the art is important because it recognized certain kind of patterns and certain kind of um, structures and symbols that were very common. So obviously, uh, just as a very straightforward example, symbols of the king, the double crown, you know, you could see the double crown and you knew, you knew that meant the king or the mace head, the mace head being a symbol of power is another is another one. And then, of course, the gods themselves, the gods embody the lived um, kind of environment, the lived the lived uh, nature that surrounds Egyptians on the day to day. The Horus, the god of sky and the, the, the actual god of kingship embodies a peregrine falcon. So, you know, you a falcon who like Egyptians likely on on their day to day experience, especially if they were hunters or, or sailors would have likely seen quite often same as how uh, Tawaret, Tawaret uh, the uh, hippopotamus goddess, who is a who is a, a maternal uh, guardian goddess because of her ferocity is based directly off of the experience of having to live with those very, very dangerous uh, water, water horses that we mentioned just earlier. So, so I think they would have still understood a great deal, even if they couldn't have read yeah. um, the hieroglyphs. Um, as for tombs, um, those uh, biographies were definitely not meant for visitors unless it was the, on the false doors where the, where the offerings were left. Um, that would sometimes be okay. by relatives or by the priests themselves who would carry out the function of taking either literal offerings or performing um, spells so that the offerings would be kind of generated by this hecker, by this magic and kind of given to them. And you will see on some false doors, like uh, there's one particular false door that I'm thinking of in the British Museum called the false door of Patashep says, and he was a, um, vizier of the fifth dynasty i think he was the vizier of um menkare and he his his false door um carries images of traditional offerings so you have 
um, dates uh, uh, and uh, oxen and fowl and all sorts. And so then a priest could come up to it and they could perform the kind of the oral spell of kind of conjuring these these offerings into being because of course these material things are still needed by the living so sometimes they would have to find creative workarounds as to not offer it especially in times of obviously drought or something like that and this comes directly to the point that i wanted to make i think far too often um the intellectual history that we that we kind of sometimes create of the past is to kind of deliberately try and space us away from it to say that oh we don't have this this superstition anymore or, or that we or that we are more advanced because we're more technocratic or cynical, I think you should always make space for the cynic in the past as well. And quite often, one of the one of the one of the things that makes me roll my eyes so much is the immediate contrast that that some like to make between, say, Egyptians and Greeks. And they like to say, oh, Greeks were more critical because they were more philosophical, as if Egyptians didn't have any conceit of philosophy or kind of you know debate. Of course, we don't often often, I say, have these things recorded, although you do quite often find this sort of satirical literature, uh, which becomes very uh, prevalent in the Middle Kingdom. Uh, there seems to be this explosion of satirical literature. So one, for example, is one of my favourites that I read when I was younger. Um, and this is where I kind of started with my fascination of people is King Khufu and his magicians, which is a story about the King Khufu of the Great Pyramid. So Heard of him. Heard of him, exactly, as did ancient Egyptians of their day right. in his time and after. So already they have this idea of kind of lineage of like of like mm -hmm. past, their own past. So but this story comes from, say, the 12th dynasty. So this is already um, kind of eight dynasties removed from 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 him. So that's about. Um, roughly speaking, a few centuries. Um, I, I can't remember the, the actual dates because when you're working with 5,000 plus yeah. years of history, dates no, cease to be... great. Yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> it seems to be irrelevant. So this story basically re retells, and this would have been probably an oral, oral tradition first of how King Khufu and his sons were basically lazing around in court and they were asking for entertainers to come and kind of entertain them with stories of of kind of like their glory and 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 the, the, what they were going to do uh with their dynasty how it was going to be great and the story ends with this very cynical point of view from a magician who basically comes to uh khufu and tells him that his dynasty is going to end you know as all dynasties do that that's kind of the point this magician is making you know mm -hmm. your your legacy will We'll certainly live on, sir, but you, you you won't be here forever. Neither will your sons be. You know, there will be another dynasty after you and a dynasty after that and a dynasty after that. So how did that go over? Uh, well, it, it, the, the, the literature kind of um, expresses his sadness, but he doesn't like deny that inevitability. That's the interesting thing. And I think it shows a number of things. It shows a, a satirical sort of point of view of the of pharaohs and of kingship in itself. It, it really challenges that that kind of base assumption that was taken in 19th and 20th century kind of um, uh, history and Egyptology more specifically that uh, Egyptians were a very kind of working towards the pharaoh, if you will, this very sort of kind of like... Sort of blindly reverent. Yeah, blind, blind reverence towards the pharaoh. I think it, it leaves room for some cynicism. Another story is the... the, the um, it, it gets given many titles, but it's, a, it's usually called uh, The Conversation Between a Man and His Car. 
And this is a story of a man who is um, having a conversation with his car, which is um, a car, to explain very briefly, is basically one part of the Egyptian soul. It is the part of the soul which returns to the deceased's body and tomb uh, after they have gone into the afterlife so that they can remember who they were. So it's kind of, in in a kind of manner of speaking, imagine it like your conscience. And so this man is having a debate with his own car because uh, one interpretation of it, although it's never really explicitly stated, although one interpretation of it is that he's kind of suicidal. And so he's having this kind of Mm. internal debate with his own car as to why there is any point in living. The car eventually wins out and is kind of like, that's just a quitter talk there, pal. But um, essentially what I think is fascinating to read about it, not only just about if we do take this view that it is um, a kind of, intention towards suicide and and kind of a reasoning against it but is the fact of like it's an admission that yes sometimes life just really really sucks and all of these higher concepts don't change that but Mm. um the car is kind of reasoning with this person and saying that doesn't mean life still isn't full of all these rich and wonderful sensations regardless of whether the, the the gods are true or not uh, that's not something that's directly said in the text, but it's kind of the the the, the underlying implication. Um, and because because essentially the man is kind of saying, well, if there's no certainty in anything, what's the point? And 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 the car's kind of throwing it back at him, saying, well, the fact that there is no certainty in anything means that you can't be certain that there isn't a point. Like they're like you yeah. know there 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 is there is something to that. So. Basically, what I'm kind of getting at is that I think that those two stories, and they are not by any means the only ones, but just taking those two stories as examples, I think they show that the Egyptian um, and Egyptians more broadly had just as much creative for and spontaneity of, yeah. of for as any ancient Greek or Roman or or later person, even to the present day, has. I love those examples that you gave. Those were brilliant. Um, and also, I think you did... A- I really appreciate the lens that you gave onto two things that I think it's very easy to lose sight of when we think about the past Uh and we think about any, any sort of other. And I think that like looking at people in the past is very much an other Uh um, because it's space and time between Uh us. And so it's hard to make that connection, but you spoke to both agency and interiority. Mm. And I think that that's very, that is not something that we should overlook. That's something that we we Mm. should be mindful of. So speaking of lives and interiority and individuals, um, do we have many examples of of individuals with disabilities from the Egyptian archaeological record? Um, Are are they represented? Okay, so I mean... To say that if there is like, um, there is no kind of specific number of like how many people we identify with disabilities, because that in itself opens one particular nutshell, which is like, how do you go about classifying those things? I think um, that is still a work that needs to be done if you were to really go back through the archaeological records, not just in the case of of mummified human remains, um, but also in the case of like artistic representations, uh, mm-hmm. in the case mm-hmm. of um, uh, monumentations of people, so statues and things, um, and kind of therefore picking apart kind of 
the like kind of larger archival sort of records of these things as well, because that has also shaped how we have kind of interpreted and recorded and kept things and understood bodies um, and and representations of the body. So I can't really give you any specific number because that is work that still needs to be done. Yeah. However, there are plenty of examples, and I think more and more uh, will come up uh, because uh, one of my biggest held beliefs is that disability is a universal human experience and therefore I think there are a lot of a lot of cases where it's is clearly evidently there but it hasn't been noticed either because a a the person who excavated it or recorded it first didn't find it relevant or simply did not want to acknowledge it as such um, and I think that also obviously speaks to how our role as people in the present and how we interpret the past and how we act with it it shapes shapes our relationship to the past and our understanding of the past and the questions that we ask of the past are always often more to do with the present so but i i can give you um one or two examples um probably with the most notable um because even the most notable examples that are accepted as disabled people in in ancient egypt i think um personally i think the scholarship on them um until very recently has has kind of needed some refreshing because i think mm. uh to to be quite honest um it lacks a certain perspective a disabled perspective to to their to their lived in experiences to their embodiment uh and this kind of speaks to why i can't really give you a quantifiable number to right. to how a, uh, the, the how common disability was because fundamentally um quite a lot of early attempts to quantify or, or to understand disability in the ancient past in general uh, were built upon a kind of interaction with disability at the very early formulation of disability studies uh, which obviously kind of coalesces as well alongside the the kind of the the disability rights movement in the 70s 80s and 90s which is pushing for and then gets passed in the ADA in the case of the US mm-hmm. and the disability rights act in the case of the United Kingdom and so on so it takes a very um kind of first of all western centric idea of disability and it also takes a very kind of systemic idea of disability looking at uh, what is called the social model so the social model uh, essentially in as quick a summary as I can give, stipulates that a disabled person is not disabled by their impairments, their lived embodiment of whatever it is that they have. So in my case, I have cerebral palsy and I use a wheelchair. It's not my cerebral palsy that disables me. It's an impairment. But what actually disables me is the built environment. It's people Mm -hmm. who do not make way for me on a bus when I need to use it, despite the fact that there are dedicated spaces for me on a bus to use it. So the actual disablement, the politics of disablement, as Michael Oliver, who was a very prominent activist in the 1980s, 1990s and early 2000s here in the the UK, um, wrote, is essentially about how human decisions lead to the disablement of a person, not uh, anything internally to do with them. Um, And that is all very true and is very critical to addressing the problems of disabled people in the present moment. Um, But uh, one of the reasons I do this work is to explore disability as a human embodiment, as a as a as like I said, as a universal uh, constant of time and how human beings have related with that, because human beings have never been a normative 
construct. We've never been a normative kind of organism. We've always had variation difference in so many different ways. And disability is just one of those ways. Disability is just the word that we use because it's the word that we have. But the word, whatever, you know, the word itself is kind of secondary to the wider sort of thing that you're thinking about. So anyway, um, going back to these two examples. um, So one is a man that we know as Seneb. Seneb was a courtier uh, with dwarfism in the Old Kingdom. He was a man who was married to a priestess, um, and he had two children. Uh, this was in the Fourth Dynasty, so the, like I said, the Old Kingdom. We know from his mastaba, so a tomb complex at Giza, that he was a wealthy man, which tests he owned several thousand herds of cattle. He also her- wow. held some, t- yes, quite a lot of cattle. That's he, so also many ha- <laughs> he also held some 20 honorific titles, overseer of weaving in the palace, overseer of dwarfs, overseer of the ceremonial barge, just to name a few, and was a priest of Wajet. We also know that he was married. His wife, Senatites, was a priestess of Hafor and Nif, and they had three children together. Some 37 individuals in total are named in his tomb. His name and those of his family are also attested in the mastabas of others, including potential relatives in the same cemetery where he is buried. So the why I bring him up first is because for most of the literature that's discussed him, which has mostly been focused around the study of, of appearances of dwarfism in ancient Egypt, because um, that is something that uh, Pharaonic Darsen has written about extensively, uh, as well as in ancient Greece. It often is focused around the actual embodiment, the actual kind of appearance of uh, dwarfism. So the fact that he is a person of short stature and therefore um, how that would have changed his lived experience. But the fact that he is a member of the royal court is often taken as like, or, or was for a long time at least, taken as like a sign of exceptionalism. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's being raised up exceptionally uh, because of, of his embodiment. Um, but I think with everything that I've just listed, already you're starting to see, well, actually, no, there's more, there's more kind of we, webs being weaved here. This is this is a this is a man who had an active role in the pharaonic royal court, and the pharaonic royal court shouldn't just be imagined as a fixed static place. You know, when we think royal court today, we're thinking of like a of like a palatial uh, court with a ballroom and thrones and and you know <laughs> yep, yeah. dancing around in, mm-hmm. in dresses and stuff. And while there were f- fixed palatial residences in certain moments of Egyptian history, the the, the royal court is essentially wherever Pharaoh, he or she, wherever they may, wherever they may be, and is often like a more kind of wide cast social network in which they would interact with. Yes, sometimes they're kind of their overseers, their viziers, their treasurers, their their generals, but more often than not, these were people who surrounded Pharaoh. Think of the titles that I listed off: overseer of weaving in the palace, overseer of dwarves, over, overseer of the ceremonial barge. These are people who are there to maintain the social environment of Pharaoh, this kind of day-to-day living and the, and the maintenance of his or her body, you know, uh, holder of the linens was another title that uh, uh, Seneb had. The fact that he had over 20 of these titles means that throughout his lifetime, he was constantly moving uh, and, and changing in these spaces, you know, he was, and the fact that he became a priest of Wajet, you know, is a certain level of significance and himself marrying a, a, a priestess to have children. Um, so it, it says something that, you know, when we think of disability in the past, 
too often we're focused on just the impairment, on just the actual uh, kind of status of the person and thinking, oh, how could they possibly have gotten there? But it's, it's, there's actually, you know, they are interacting with people. And because he likely had relatives who had, who had been also in the court, um, some who also had dwarfism. It's a long kind of relation that that these people are having together. And I mean, my my thesis is looking at this: why we see this prevalence of disability and bodily difference within the pharaonic royal court. It's something that I'm just fascinated by. I said this very recently, and this is kind of a point that I really want to make in my work: is that too often um, the work on disability in the ancient past too often coming from a non-disabled lens, assumes that disability first is a is a lived experience that is less than a, a normal, quote-unquote, normal life, um, which I, I don't think obviously applies in this case because this is a man who's, who's incredibly wealthy and clearly very well off. And it, obviously it's worth bearing in mind that he is exceptional in that case. He is a member of the royal court and therefore that doesn't necessarily speak to the lived experience of someone with dwarfism who was not in the royal court. But it clearly he is not seen by his peers as less than. Quite often in his tomb reliefs, he is doing the exact same things that many other Egyptians of his of his time were doing. Like he was sailing in his boat. He was um, he was fulfilling his duties. He was the father figure and no less of a father figure, despite his short stature and his statues and his representations in the tomb don't show him as wanting to attain some sort of perfect normal, again, normal and huge quotation marks, uh, right. body in life. It, this is his body. Uh, and it's the same for the second case study. The second case study is a, is a woman called Geheset. So Geheset, um, who lived much later, so this was in the 18th century BCE. So this was six or seven <laughs> centuries, at least after Seneb. Um, okay. So yeah, um, and this is at the end. So this is by the late 13th dynasty. So Geheset was a woman uh, with cerebral palsy, we believe, due to studies of her actual remains. I should say earlier, Seneb, we don't have any human remains for. His his mastaba was opened a long time ago. And where his human remains are, we don't know. But we have uh, Geheset's, or I say we have. Um, I actually wasn't able to figure out where her remains are presently, but the coffin oh. is in, is in, yes. Mm. Um, um, but the coffin is um, in in Egypt still, um, and and from her study of her remains, the bioarchaeological bio study of her remains, uh, we know that she had cerebral palsy, ataxic cerebral palsy, to be more instance. So what this meant is that she had hypermobility in her in her in her hands. So she had basically very flexible joints. We know this because the body uh, preserves the the flesh around the joints. So it wasn't post mortal deformations. This was something that was just present with her from life. Uh, we know that she had an excess of saliva because of uh, residue on her teeth uh, that would go to the right side of her mouth. So she chewed more dominantly uh, on the left side of her mouth. Um, and so all these patterns um, should indicate that she may have had a taxi cerebral palsy as long as a few other things. But fundamentally, uh, she was married to a judge named Emeni, and uh, judges were very prominent members of the royal court. And actually, uh, her tomb uh, uh, and the, uh, and well, their tomb, because he would have been buried with her initially, uh, originally. Sorry, um, was in the uh, Dra Abu El Nagar, which is a necropolis in Thebes, where one of the earliest in in Thebes, um, and. In terms of the sacred landscape that I mentioned earlier, her tomb is near, near, near to a 
tomb of a later pharaoh. So the fact that that space uh, remained sacred and that she was part of it is key to her status. Again, when when the, when they're analysing her 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 life and her kind of embodiment, they, the the bioarchaeologists they say, oh, it must have been a very kind of um, I think the word they use is strange or, or weird. You know, they they because her her body movements, she would have had what's called a wide base gait, so she wouldn't have walked um, as as yourselves could. She would have walked with kind of a disjointedness, not necessarily the straightest of lines, if you will. Um, but this kind of reduction of herself to just these physical attributes, and also just like this kind of reduction of her in this study meant that subsequent Egyptologists just took it and were like, oh, she, she had this grotesque appearance. Literally, this was from a, from a book written in 2017. Uh, so I was just like... That's not very helpful. Yeah, I was just like, okay, all right. We don't know the beauty that encased her. We don't know the spark of kind of life that inha- inhabited her. But clearly, I mean, just reading her coffin, she is the beloved wife and overseer of the household and that is a thing she had an active role in her own life um i think this is actually going back to the conversation you had with um andrew uh the bench of the bioarchaeology of care one of my biggest criticisms of the bioarchaeology of care is it presumes all agency is upon the carer the 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 the, the, the yeah. receiver of care is always the secondary participant in that they are not they are always the receiver and they are always the one who is kind of at the whim of of the carer um, in, in just the kind of the broadest reading that is taken from it, whereas I don't think that's how care actually works. And also the just the, 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 redu- the reductive assumption that interdependence is the reduction of independence. The fact that, you know, you can't mm-hmm. be an independent person if you're inter- interdependent on others, that's just simply not true. And I, I think in Gehaset's case, and I, I say this in the talk, I think her role in the court as this person who also, it should be noted, Gehaset is believed to have potentially um, traveled from, from, from Nubia, so from the far south of uh, what is today um, very southern Egypt, uh, nor- northern Sudan. If, if that is true, then not only did she travel quite a ways to end up in the royal court in Ichtawe, which is in Middle Egypt, uh, supposedly, uh, that's some thousand so miles down down the Nile. But also the fact of like, um, if we assume, of course, that she did travel during her lifetime, which is entirely possible. Uh, but also the fact of like, um, they would have moved again to Thebes. So that's also quite a distance. Um, and and therefore her body going through that, you've got to imagine like, yes, that wouldn't have been easy, but they clearly did it because she lived into, into her 60s. And that's not an insignificant lifetime, either for at the time or for someone with cerebral palsy in particular. So clearly she was well looked after, but she also had quite a life of her of her own. And the fact that even with these disabilities, she lived this life and and she was very happily married and and while we don't know many more details about her life, you can only imagine about how she would, in this role as overseer of the household, been responsible for maintaining these social relationships with mm-hmm. the rest of the royal court, including potentially Pharaoh and his, his retinue themselves. The act of looking after her and making sure that, the, that there was an, enough saliva not in her mouth so that she was able to eat and to talk and to drink and all the rest of it, um, the overproduction of saliva and other bodily fluids 
fluids in the ancient Egyptian medical literature is seen as something as a worry because all bodily fluids are connected to those same fluids that I mentioned earlier. None. The, the creative forces mm-hmm. of the world. So any overproduction of fluids or uncontrollable fluids were seen as quite a danger. But then if that was the case, why would Gehazet be anywhere like the royal court? Well, Potentially, the reason why is because I think the actual process of caring for her and removing that saliva was something of a means of addressing the chaos of the world. It was a say of helping to bring order, which is something that Pharaoh does. Uh, that's what they're supposed to do. So I think the act of giving care in those contexts, especially at a time when the court is in flux, because it moves from Ichtawe to Thebes because of uh, the Hyksos. The Hyksos are starting to move into the to the Nile Delta. And this is when, you know, the second intermediate period is kind of on the cusp of beginning. So in order to bring some semblance of order, I think having individuals like Gehaset around were important for Pharaoh to maintain this image of authority and bringing order. And I think Gehaset was equally conscious of this. I think Gehaset understood her role in this in this performance and was actively a participant in it, not just the one receiving it. Um, and that that to wrap up is going back to how I mentioned Seneb, Seneb's name means healthy. Um, Egyptians were very conscious about their choice of naming and, and it very much reflected um, how they wanted to see themselves in in life, or or at least um, like a lot of names could go on to mean like their actual role or their or their title or, or their relationship to something. Um, so Seneb means healthy, Gehaset means gazelle, and gazelles, as I mentioned all the way back at the beginning when we talked about uh, order and natural chaos, ge- gazelles are a part of that natural chaos that I was mentioning. They are one of the big game animals that um, that the Egyptians would hunt, and it was it was there. It was the kind of the and and you do find scenes of them being domesticated, not literally. That's not what happened, but the the kind of visual representation of them being domesticated was again this human humanity bringing order to to chaos. Especially if 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 she had migrated, which may mean that she chose to take on an Egyptian name. The choice of of Gehaset may have been a reflection of her own embodiment. And just for like, just a touch of clarity, for names, it would one take on a name as an adult? Is this because you mentioned with Gehaset, like would she would pick this name, um, and or is this because she came Seneb, from somewhere like, else? Or, like, is that uh, would his parents have named mm. him? Where do you Would get your one's name, name change over the course of one's life? So, yeah, from what we understand of Egyptian names and from what, what we know of Egyptian names often comes from these kind of legal documents um, that sometimes prop up, bearing in mind that they are only a small fraction of the documents that would have existed because of just the nature of the Nile, Nile Delta and the Nile Valley. A lot of organic material like papyrus just degrades, so it's very lucky when we find some actual papyrus. Oftentimes you'll see it on Ostrica as well. Um, but um, what we f- what we think and what we imagine is that often names were given by parents. Um, it's never very entirely clear who was the deciding factor in that, whether there was like a specific, was it the mother who did it? Was it the father? Or did they both kind of come to a mutual decision? But Maybe most like, names, yeah, most, most names, <laughs> yeah. Most names, it is assumed, come from the parents. But as okay. to changing names, that was something that could happen. And especially okay. for um, a, a non-Egyptian who was coming into an Egyptian setting, it was very common to take on an Egyptian name. Now, 
because Gehazet may have potentially come from Nubia, it's worth bearing in mind that the often assumed relationship of Nubia being the kind of periphery to Egypt and vice versa shouldn't should is really kind of outdated so maybe it wasn't as distinct as that i think for if we do assume that gehaset migrated from nubia the fact that she was able to find herself very easily within the royal court assumes a much more symbiotic relationship between the two than than has been previously assumed and there are a lot of great scholars out there who are kind of showing that through many different studies of trade and of of kind of religious relations and so on and so forth but even so like localizing yourself with a more kind of recognizable name sound uh, thing is is entirely common and so that is what could have happened it's entirely possible as well that the name did come from from her parents but like i said we know very little about that but it's just it's it is it is still an identity it's an identifier as it is for us today um although i don't think we think about it in much the same way as as they would have done so in terms of the material of the the world of ancient Egypt. Do you have a do you have a favorite artifact or a piece of art or an instance of writing that speaks to the experience of someone mm. with bodily differences? Yeah, see this this one um I had to really kind of think uh, on because again, this is where you have to kind of read between uh lines a bit. Mm-hmm. Um but I think um my favorite piece of of writing because it often comes up in these studies about disability or bodily differences in ancient egypt and i think like it it suits it suits it uh, but um i think often sometimes it's taken i don't necessarily want to say in the wrong way like i'm some guy who like oh i've got it right but it's more of a thing of like i think there's more to it than people often assume is the wisdoms of amanem hope or the instructions of amanem hope uh, so these are instructions. This is a wisdom literature. So wisdom literature starts from uh, the Middle Kingdom, uh, but carries on into the New Kingdom and later. And this particular one is believed to have been or- originally from the New Kingdom, but we find most written examples from the uh, kind of third intermediate period onwards. Um, and this particular wisdom literature is instructions from a from a uh, from Amenhotep Hope to his son. And he's basically telling him how to lead a very virtuous life. In in the later periods of Egyptian history, we see this kind of pivot towards um, what we would kind of as, like associate with personal piety today in, in a much kind of late, later historical construct. Um, but uh, in particular, in this kind of changing world, again, another changing world um, from the New Kingdom to the Vernon Intermediate Period, uh, Amanem hopes telling us on how to lead a virtuous life. And in chapter 25 specifically... Do not laugh at a blind man, nor taunt a dwarf. Neither interfere with the condition of a cripple. Do not taunt a man who is in the hand of God, nor scowl at him as if he errs. Man is clay and straw, and God is his potter. He overthrows and he builds daily. He impoverishes a thousand if he wishes, but he makes a thousand into officials. When he is in his hour of life, how fortunate is he who reaches the West when he is safe in the hand of God. So quite often, this is just literally taken as an example of, oh, this is this is Amenemhotep telling his son that he should not mistreat the disabled or, or, or any other vulnerable person. And yes, that is true. That is what he is saying. So basically, they're, they're assuming that this means that there was acceptance for disabled people in broad strokes in Egyptian society. Uh, number one, if he has to tell him that to not do these things, I think that suggests that necessarily that wasn't always the case. Uh, number two, 
I think it's the man is clay and straw bit that really gets it for me. I think it's the idea yeah. that um, Egyptian uh, bodies and by extension, I think the mind as well are mutable constructs. They change constantly through life. And I think this is also reflected in Egyptian understandings of aging. The staff of old age, which is a very common uh, signifier in Egyptian art, when a, when a person holds a staff, um, that can be a sign of authority, but it often means that they are someone who is in the twilight of their years. And to be clear, old age isn't necessarily signified by a literal aging of like you've reached a certain age. Now you're, you're an old person. It's more of a case of the body has changed to a point where you can no longer fulfill the role that whatever you were doing. So now it is the responsibility of your kin. Uh, your son, more often than not, to overtake you. And the staff is a symbolization of that transition. So this okay. kind of comes back. So so basically, they constantly see bodies as in as part of this transitionary process in this universal life cycle of life and death, which is so central to the Egyptian worldview. Um, and I think that includes people with disabilities. And, and particularly when, when you think about people with disabilities of different embodiments, um, I think that would, have, that would have informed their interactions with them, both positively and negatively, I think. I think, um, as I mentioned earlier with, with Gehazet and the bodily fluids, she was in a privileged position of being in the royal court and, and being part of this performance. I think for maybe someone in a similar position as her, but who is living in more day-to-day -day life would have found it a bit more difficult potentially because of superstition surrounding it. But then again, I do want to stress that human beings have always had a capacity for care and have always had a capacity for, for, for integrating um, people and, 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 and living alongside them despite these things. So I think like, you know, while they may have faced some, some jeers from some people, there would have still been people who loved them, their own family for one. Um, so I think, you know, it's always more complicated and multifaceted than that. And that's what this kind of text opens the door for. And, and symbols like the staff of old age open up for this idea of constant transition of change and of mutability and the assuredness of, of being like, you have to prepare for these things that no one is separate from this cycle, not even you, you know, you age and yeah. you will go blind and you will go deaf one day and that therefore that is something that you have to prepare for but this is the important thing the important important thing it was not necessarily it's something that in a lot of egyptian literature they do bemoan you know these aging things but aging is not necessarily something that is grand grandized or looked forward to but with right preparation it is something that can life in itself can still be fulfilling and again the staff of old age formed part of that but just in general the kind of the the, the the kind of the wisdom of old age and the the kind of the glory of the life beyond is is something to kind of look forward to well said well exactly let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we will ask more questions This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion.
Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. We're back. This is great. I am like <laughs> Amber's having the I'm best time. Experiencing mounting resentment towards like, everyone <laughs> who no. didn't talk to me about things like this when I was a student. <laughs> <laughs> so as a disabled Egyptologist, what have your experiences with research and accessibility been, both good and bad? Stemming from that, what changes do you most want to see in the field? So the field of Egyptology. So I think I ought to say off the start of it that I have been very fortunate and very privileged to have been found myself um, in a place where I am very well supported and um, more in, in the broader strokes, I have been lucky not to have experienced some of the experiences that other disabled uh, colleagues of mine have unfortunately experienced within broader academia. Um, so I, like, but that is why I want to say that I am a, privileged exception to that i mean i have certainly faced plenty of ableism in my day-to-day life um and i've certainly faced uh, plenty of skepticism um that, that borders on ableism from from some in the academy but broadly speaking i have had the um the privilege to have the support of the institute of archaeology at ucl and and before that the history department as well um in kind of helping me through some very dark moments in my life um so i'm i'm fortunate for that and that has really helped me grow as a person and to understand my own limits as a person and to basically want the same for everyone else i've kind of tried to make it my mantra to say well you made these exceptions for me which i'm grateful for but then why weren't we doing it for everyone else like and um and trying to make a point a case and point of saying you know this this needs to be the standard this needs to be the norm that this embracing of flexibility and understanding that life just gets in the way and that the body and the mind are not constantly you know, at the at, at our whims as much as we would like them to be. Um, and this goes for everyone, disabled or no, um, but particularly for the disabled uh, in this case. Um, I think in terms of my research, um, what has been good has just been, again, the, the reception I've been given. Um, people have been very attentive. I think people are very keen to learn. And I am very grateful to all the opportunities I've already been given in what I'm still at a very early stage in, in my career to get to talk about this. So thank you both again for, for giving me this opportunity. It's been wonderful. And I, I, I'm Absolutely. grateful for letting letting me ramble at you for almost an hour and a half now. Um, but um, yeah, it's that that has been good. And I've been able as a result to be uh, to find all this this great stuff and to connect with other disabled Egyptologists as well because there are quite a few of us more than more than you might think and to talk with them and their research interests also cover disability in the ancient world but some of them none at all um and and that's fine and it's just kind of that more lived experience of being a disabled Egyptologist is is great to connect with in terms of the bad side though is like again negotiating with a literature and a discipline that is very very steeped in in 
ableism, which is itself is tried with the eugenicism that is very prevalent in Egyptology, the the history of of race and archaeology in in general, but particularly with Egyptology, Flinders Petrie and Francis Galton here at UCL, just as one example of how that was utilized to push a very racist eugenicist idea of the human um, kind of body and and race in general. Um, and and that and how that is also kind of tied as well to the idea of the perfect body, uh, you know, Petrie, for all his advances in Egyptology, and and that can't be denied either. Um, but nobody is the, the that does not take away from the actual crux of the issue that he just simply uh, wasn't a very nice man. Uh, he right, yeah. he 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 was very. And people will say, oh, but he was of his time. And it's like, yes, he was of his time. But even then, there were people then who were calling him out on his... weren't jerks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even then, there were people who were critical of his ideas. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, is, it does not take away from the fact that we should be critical of them now. Um, and the fact that he tried to frame Egyptians as this, this Aryan uh, kind of perfect race that were the progenitors to European civilization, which is why going back to all that I was saying earlier about how my, my hooks were clawed into me for Egyptology, because I saw all this kind of um, this connections between obviously the modern sort of issue of race in say America or even here in the UK and the relationships of colonialism in Africa. And it always stood out to mm-hmm. me even then about how Egypt is always seen separate to Africa when mm-hmm. it's very clearly part of the African continent and the kind of history right there, the, the histories that we have constructed around that and how we've taken that out kind of weaved within all that kind of miasma of, of awfulness. Uh, there's also just the nature of like I was explaining with the uh, earlier case studies I gave you. So, so in some of the earliest literature, you will just find utter contempt. Um, like this is going all the way back to Petrie, but this also goes into say the early, I want to say um, 80s and 90s, you will find people who do see disability as unfortunately a lesser kind of form of of life and then there was a reaction to that there were academics who did say no come come on that's not fair and that's good like don't get me wrong um but even then they look at it as like a charity sort of thing so it's like come on they they they, their lives were in spite of their disabilities or despite their disabilities they they managed to do this which again all, all still comes back to this crux of disability being the kind of the the the, the, the letdown that the, the the embodiment itself was a negative a drawback, um, and that's kind of where we are now. Where it's kind of like myself and many of my colleagues, um, Alexandra Morris uh, from Teesside University, is a PhD candidate who also has cerebral palsy, also doing Egyptology. Um, for example, uh, she has been talking about, uh, given talks about uh, Tutankhamun and how his embodiment of disability with his bodily differences, how often there is a pushback against that because they don't want to see him as disabled because he is a king. So how could a king right. be disabled? And they, they will come up with excuses. They'll say, oh, it was it was post-mortal defamation because they were rushing to to, to mummify him. It's like, he's already dead. They wouldn't have rushed something that they have done for thousands of years. Like, you know, they were rushing the tomb, I grant you, yes, but the actual process would have taken the exact same time as it always does. They would have, de- they would have done it no differently. Fundamentally, the disability always has to be in the other. 
and 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 the fact of like no it's still very intricately tied to all these different things and sometimes disability isn't the main focus of it it's just another embodiment of a of a larger kind of display that's going on here the larger complexities of 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 kind of um of 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 what we are studying here and i think it's just fundamentally one of the biggest things that we have made a mistake in doing is trying to look at the, at the past as very 2D and very kind of like, this is what it was and this is this is how it was and that's it, where we can't imagine any sort of possibility where they were just as vibrant and unsure as we are. Like, this is another, another thing. I think sometimes too often literature at the, at the present moment, uh, like there's a lot that's coming out now on disability antiquity, which is great. Um, like, don't get me wrong, I love it. Um, and I don't also want to make clear, I'm not saying that non-disabled people can't study this. You absolutely can. But just remember your own positionality. Don't don't forget that you don't have these lived embodiments or experiences. So think about how you've been coded to see disability and try and think beyond that. And, and to do that, you need to listen to disabled people. You need to work with them um, and give them agency in, in these conversations. Um, and that they're always searching for this definitive answer as if the ancients had any kind of definitive answer themselves. Because even today, like you, you, you will find that we are constantly reckoning with many different identities and that's just very fundamental to, to what humans are. And I don't think it would have been any different in the past. And why we, why we can't seem to let go, let go of that idea that they must have had a definitive category for something because our sources have skewed us to think that they always had definitive answers for things. When I think obviously, like, I mean, I'll, I'll use ancient Greece as an example. Constantly people will read Plato and Aristotle and what have you and be like, oh yes, this is what Greek society was like, forgetting that this is the academy. This is what the academy wants Greek society to be, not what it was. Come on, be more like Diogenes. Come on, like, you know, like kind of uh. be 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 more of a cynic. Um, <laughs> like, um, but in all seriousness, yeah, just have that willingness to 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 be to be to be daring to imagine something more colourful and and whatever. And I think just one example having. Uh, more disabled uh, scholars, not just in Egyptology, but more broadly, to kind of bounce off that, embrace not just not just within the discipline, but look outside, look at critical race theory, look at critical queer theory, look at critical disability theory, and incorporate that into your into your structures when you're thinking about these things. Disconstruct this idea of a normative body. This is also something that is fundamentally broken, I think, in Egyptology. We just because of our our relationship, obviously, with human remains, which is also just ass backward if i'm being quite blunt um the ways in which we look at the mummified human remains and we think oh yes we can study these to understand their lived experiences and lives and don't get me wrong of course they can tell us some things like i told you earlier guess that human remains allow us to know that she was indeed had ataxic cerebral palsy most likely but but it's always important to remember that the process of mummification was a transformation into something new something different there was a you you became literally a statue that was the, that was the transformation that you were doing so there's only so much it can tell you about their lived lives because it's not the same body that they were in life it has been it has been modified altered you know stuff of like that so you can't look at that and be like oh yes they they were all the, the same they all had these were the archetypal egyptian bodies it's like yeah. no no there is no archetypal human body that is all a myth quite frankly and i just i just want to see that blown out of the water stop working from a presumption of a normative body because that's just not how it works pulling from your own experiences and, and your own mm. you know 
continuation of your thoughts on the field. What key advice would you give to someone with a disability who wants to go into archaeology? And basically, what do you wish you could mm. tell 10 years ago, Kyle? <laughs> slightly younger Kyle. Yeah, slightly younger Kyle. So what key advice would I give to someone with a disability who wants to go into archaeology? I think yeah. first and foremost is to know that there there is a space for you here that you are just as relevant and 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 very much needed in the discipline now more than ever and i don't and this is something i kind of link back to the previous question um is like when earlier when i said that i didn't initially see myself as a as someone who was likely to go into archaeology because it's just the way the discipline is presented in the popular consciousness is this very physically demanding thing first of all my own confidence with my own body was something at the time when I started was not the best. But nowadays, I'm, I'm very confident in my own body. There are plenty of things that you can do within the space of archaeology in terms of the fieldwork, as is popularly imagined, which you could still do. Um, and there have been many, many studies about that. And I, I can share those with you as well to go in the description. Uh, Teresa yeah, O'Mahony, uh, the late Teresa O'Mahony, um, wrote a great guide on this for the British Archaeological Jobs Resources uh, Board that I could give you the link for. And there have been many other groups that have come off of that, Enabled Archaeology, which was founded by Teresa and has now uh, kind of continued on in her name. Uh, and then um, Disabled Archaeologist Network, which is a US-based one, uh, is another one. Uh, all of these uh, great networks, uh, Crip Antiquity is another, mm -hmm. all these great networks provide resources and get together and think about these things and and one of these things is, yeah, that field work actually can be more accessible than you think it is. And I think um, meeting in these spaces and joining them, even now, even if you're only just considering it and just like, or even if you just have a faint interest in it and just getting to meet other disabled people who are in the discipline and who, who are already making a difference and who already do have a space and to see that there is space for you as well is, is good. Uh, and to and to not, not shy away from just finding it and, and seeing it there, but also archaeology is not just about field work and i think actually the discipline especially in because of because of covid but i think more generally over the years is going to start moving less towards field work i think that field work will always be a part of it that's not i'm not saying it won't be there but i think quite i think we are going to see a, a shift away from field work and more a focus on archives on the collections that we already have in their droves which still to this day have not been studied or reckoned with or, or, or understood and i think there is necessary work there and i think um disabled archaeologists could play a very pivotal role in that um and again like i like i was saying i think my my bit the role I want to play, uh, kind of my biggest ambition was to one day write an archaeology of disability as a theory. I want to really kind of put that forward. Um, um, and, and and that's kind of my greatest ambition in the long run, you know, go through, get a PhD, get that, write this book. Um, and that is where I see myself in challenging this theory. But there's so many other things that people can do. They can do that as well. Like, you know, I'd certainly shouldn't just be my voice alone. Uh, but, uh, you know, they can also do many other things. And uh, if I could go back and tell myself something uh, 10 years ago, um, first of all, I think, I mean, thinking 10 years ago, I would have been 15. So this is even before I'm considering university. I think what I would have told, what I would have told Kyle um, 10 years ago, or at least when he was thinking about university and where he was going and stuff is that fundamentally the, what we should be working towards and what we should be dreaming for is a discipline that is um, better than what it is. You know, that, we, that, 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 that a discipline 
and this kind of almost goes on into the next question, but it's it's a constant work in progress, or at least it should be. Like the the, the the received orthodoxy of the way of doing things, and this isn't just strict to Egyptology, it's a lot of disciplines, is something that, you know, should be challenged, should be deconstructed, and that it's okay to be the the opposing voice of opinion in, in that case and to and to um be willing to think of a bigger and better sort of future for these things. Especially I, I think of this because, you know, when you're young and you fall in love with the British Museum and then you grow up and you hear all these debates about restitution, I won't lie, I was, you know, initially quite resistant, but I quickly realized that this is just, you know, as I got older, that this is just there is a there is a very not just this is not just about validity, but it's also just a case of like we can do better than this. We can we can dream a, be- a better thing for museums, for Egyptology, for all these things. But in order to do that, we have to discard the master's tools as they were. You can't rebuild the master's house with his same tools. You have to think bigger uh, and think better as well. Um, and I also think, I think I would share with with him something that I take to heart a lot now. Uh, Cornell West uh, recently, I say recently in the past few years, uh, was asked about uh, James Baldwin. Uh, the civil rights uh, leader, and he was asked what was so kind of fundamentally what was so special about him. Why is it that he continues to resonate with with people so much? And he said this quote. He said, um, "Sometimes it wasn't enough just to have hope." Uh, talking about obviously the the times that he was living in, um, but you have to be hope. So that's what I would tell tell Kyle all those years ago, along with everything else I said. Fundamentally. You can't just have hope. You've got to be hope. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I strive for. And and so now the hard questions, <laughs> the, the hardest questions of all, we're bringing it on home with the three questions that we ask every guest. Um, and the first one being, what is the best thing about anthropology? What is the best thing about anthropology? Well, studyingly, this actually might be one of my shorter answers. Um, but uh, what I think is the best thing about anthropology is that, uh, just as I was saying earlier, I think it has the tools to show us how we can think of ourselves as a constant work in progress. I think a lot about, um, uh, when when thinking about this question, I think a lot about um, David Graeber's uh, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology um, and how he kind of put forward this idea that uh, anthropology and anarchism actually, you know, they, they, you might think they're the complete antithesis of each other in, in a certain respect, because anthropology in the academy is something else. And you would think anarchism is something that is separate from the academy and, and it has no place in it. But um, I think um, the, the, the point that Graeber was making in the simplest summary as I can give, and I can I can give you a, a link because the, the book is freely available online. Um this is this is provided by I believe what was his own website I think, um, but they, it was by his own permission he put it out free for everyone because he believed in that. Um, but anyway, um, uh, he basically puts forward this idea that um, the whole study of anthropology is to ask these very kind of present human questions, and even if you're looking into the past, it is about constantly finding a way forward. And anarchism, in its kind of basic conceit, is about kind of a very kind of communal oriented kind of deconstructed way of knowing and being going forward. So I think the best thing about anthropology is that it has the potential to have those tools to give us to think about how we move forward. I mean, I'm reading currently um, David Graeber's um, 
last book um, written with David Wengro, who is, I have the privilege of being one of my supervisors called The Dawn of Everything, which only recently just came out. And it completely just deconstructs the notions of uh, how we have really kind of conceived of the history of civilization and just makes the point of like, as I was saying earlier, of imagining a different possibility because human beings have that potential to have so much more possibility. We are not just fixed into our lanes of, of, you know, of hierarchy and, 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 and society as we know it. None of this was meant to be, none of this was evolutionary. It just happened because we made a choice at one point and we can make a choice again. Um, and that, like I said, I think is the best thing about anthropology. It can pose that question and and break those boundaries when it's used in a very kind of radical sort of way. And I think I prescribe to an anarchist anthropology of kind of trying to break those 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 boundaries, or at least try to. And the final question, if you could be a fly on the wall for one moment in either human history or prehistory, or for a moment in the development of archaeology or anthropology, what would you choose? Oh, so I had to think about this one um, for, for a while as well. Um, and I think if I could be a fly on the wall for any one moment in human history, I'm thinking about this because of, uh, of a story that came out recently in the archaeological world. I would love to be a fly on the wall at the moment that the vizier of King Khufu came to the workmen and said to them, right, so we're going to build this pyramid and it's going to be this big. And it's going to, and it's like, this is, this is, this like actually explains that to them. This is the ambition that we have. I would love to have seen their reaction. I would love to have known what they felt and what they thought at that, that particular moment, whether they believed that that was something that they were going to achieve and whether that was something that they thought was going to hmm. last as long as it has. And uh, the reason why I think is because I think we often forget um, about that that kind of human side of the story. And, and this came up in my head because of uh, the recent publication of a second volume of the Red Sea Papyri, which uh, documents the work task forces, uh, yeah. four of them specifically, that were part of the building of the Great Pyramid of Khufu. So we now have the names of actual people who were involved in the construction of the of the Great Pyramid. So that just blows any kind of ambiguity out of the water of whether obviously it was a human being, because of course it was. I, I, I just, yeah, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that moment just to see the, 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 the spark in their eyes, because I can just only imagine how... How amazing how that must have been. Yeah. How big are you like? <laughs> you want what? <laughs> you want what? But just, they did it. They did it. And it, 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 it's, you know, one of the greatest marvels of, of human history. So not, not the only, but one of, one of still the best. One of the big ones. Yeah, one of the big ones. So yeah, that's where I would have wanted to have been in terms of human history. Well, they might have been just like, well, job security. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> guaranteed, that's guaranteed work for at least a quarter of a century. I believe that's yeah. how they estimate how long it took to build. So, yeah. It's like unrolls the, the yeah. scroll with the blueprints. And just <laughs> so, you know, Imhotep did this point to get the Pyramid of Joseph. Or well, we're going to do okay. this. <laughs> Shows up with a scale model. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a tomb for ants? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. Well, way to stay current with your references. Thanks. I mean, it's, it's timeless. It's vintage. <laughs> so um, that's going to do it for this episode. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us yes, today. Yes, thank you. Thank I have you. learned so much. 
There's so much, like I've made notes of things that I want to think about later. And like, just think, like not even like learn more about, like, I just want to think about it. Put in her little Um, box of mind treats. Like this is for me later. um, I'm, I'm particularly sort of moved by the, what you referred to of like the man in conversation with his own car. Like that was very, like as, as someone. I did think mm-hmm. you, you were talking about a wheeled vehicle for I mean, a brief yeah, Anna moment. did think that. She did think there was an R at the end of that. But I was busy <laughs> Sorry. being very caught in my, my thoughts. Of no, just- I was moved as well. I just had a moment of like conversation with, what? Well, <laughs> okay. I, and then oh, I caught other, up. Yeah. Morgan. Like, mm-hmm. But but just thinking about it in terms of um, as somebody who lives with depression and sort of mm. thinking about like these ways to sort of conceptualize sort of our world and mm-hmm. our interior worlds and things. So I'm going to be thinking about that a bit more um, in my own time. Um, uh, but glad. thank you so much. This was so this was so great. Uh, what an honor. What a pleasure. Yes. And thank you, everyone else for being party to this uh listeners we will be back in your ears next week with a brand new episode actually no Mm. yes no well yes yeah shiny and new i don't know i'm losing track of time it will be new that's okay it will be new you've already heard the live show Mm -hmm. (laughs) until then what is time until then before then after then you can find us on spotify (laughs) apple podcasts audible or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Yeah, you can also find us on social media, like on Facebook, where we post archaeology stories and more. Or we will again, now that I've figured out how to unlock my account. I, I changed phones because my phone broke and Facebook locked me out and I had to go through so many steps. It was the river ordeal. But that is over at The Dirt Podcast on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that, plus merch plus a link to our Patreon, resources for educators, and um, all our other fantastic guests. All, all of that stuff. is over on our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.